when I hear people argue about like a cheaper, faster L1 or something like that, my bullshit meter goes up quite a bit. What I think is really important in crypto is kind of new social innovations. I think the technical innovation is is vastly overrated. For an L1 to just come along and be like cheaper and faster than Ethereum, I don't think that matters much at all. This episode is brought to you by Carbon. Carbon is a new DEX on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity super easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate your liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limit and range orders, all from a beautiful UI. Check out Carbon today for unprecedented control over your liquidity. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Empire. We have uh, Nick Tomino, founder of One Confirmation, joining us. Uh, Nick, welcome to uh, Empire, my friend. Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys. Yeah, yeah good to see you, man. A um, lot to cover here. I, I want to start with, uh, you've had some hot takes against kind of uh, the crypto VC crowd, I will say. I'm just going to read a couple of these, and then maybe that can spark an interesting little conversation or debate here. Um, July 1st, so about a month ago, you tweeted, venture capital is the fakest industry on the planet. In what other industry can you objectively be bad at your job, but create narratives that make you appear great to the outside world for years? Uh, earlier this year, maybe it was last year, I remember you tweeted, venture capital is the dumb money in crypto. And there's a bunch of these kind of tweets that follow the same line of reasoning. Tell us what's behind these tweets. Um, I mean, I would say the main thing is that as a venture capital investor, the, you know, the job is to make good investments, right? It's to generate returns for LPs. And that's not what um, the focus is for, for most venture capitalists, um, especially to the outside world, right? So like performance is never discussed. Um, the SEC actually makes that hard um, and is part of the reason for this. But I think, you know, the culture in Silicon Valley venture capital is to, you know, be perceived as smart or good at your job. And you can do that uh, really well without actually being good at your job. So that's kind of the main reason I tweeted that. It's like, it just feels after being in it. And I, you know, I came into this world as a complete outsider, right? So I didn't know what venture capital was, um, you know, coming out of college. I then like got on Twitter early and dove really deep and kind of became an insider, right? Joined Coinbase, then started one of the first crypto venture funds. Um, so I kind of, you know, had an outsider perspective, then became an insider. And now being in it for, you know, five plus years, it just feels uh, very fake to me. Um, there's, um, you know, a lot of these big brands that, um, you know, create kind of, you know, an elitist narrative that they're the smartest guys in the room without actually being that. And that's how most of, uh, you know, most of not just crypto, but Silicon Valley venture capital is. How do, um, if I were to survey like 20, 30 people, um, how would they describe and what's con like your edge and how would they describe one confirmation? Um, I mean, we are crypto native investors that invest in products that we understand deeply from a user perspective. So how I got into crypto, um, you know, I was buying Bitcoin back in 2012 and um, to do that back then in the U.S., you know, I was in Portland, Maine, uh, taking out cash out of an ATM and 
than going to a local Walgreens and money gramming it to Mt. Gox, right? That was like the early UX for crypto. And then I saw Brian Armstrong launch Coinbase on Hacker News. Um, and it just solved a very simple problem for me, which was, you know, buy bank, buy Bitcoin with a bank account rather than having to, you know, do all this stuff in the physical world. And um, I became one of the first hundred or so users of Coinbase that way. And that's, that's how we invest. We just use products. Um, you know, we were, that was how I, we, we got involved in OpenSea very early as well. I was one of the first users in OpenSea because I was, you know, buying and selling CryptoKitties. And to do that initially, you had to go to the CryptoKitties website. They charge 5%. What's the true benefit of an NFT, right? It's true ownership and you should be able to trade this anywhere. And so I found OpenSea and it, again, very simple pro problem at the time that served a very niche audience, which was allow people to trade CryptoKitties for 2% rather than 5%. So that's, that's how we invest. We're very practical. Um, we're not trying to uh, create narratives or um, sound really smart or things like that, which I hear a lot of, you know, the vast majority of um, crypto investors especially do this. I hear a lot of, you know, explaining why X uh, L1 is uh, better technically or something like that. And um, I think a lot of that is bullshit, to be honest. Um, it's, you know, for crypto to matter, it's it's about products that are useful. So we're only investing in products that are useful to us. And it just so happens that products that are useful to us kind of early tend to be products that are useful for the masses, um, you know, in the long term. This is interesting because over the last, like, you guys have been around for what, six, seven years now? Mm-hmm. I mean, we started, in, uh, I guess, almost six. Uh, we started six. in uh, 2017. Yeah. And there's a common, like, recent debate now, which is, are we investing too much in infrastructure? And where are the consumers? Like, block space is empty right now. You could argue there's a deficit of infrastructure, like a, a surplus of infrastructure, not enough, like, really good consumer applications. So when you say that you're investing in things that you use, maybe give us a few examples, because obviously you could argue that, sure, OpenSea is probably one of the things that has gotten the most amount of consumer um, traction, but still, it's super early. Um, so I am curious over the, over the course of six years, like where have you, like, have you always had this strategy? Because candidly, like mainstream is not here and hasn't been. So how do you think about investing in that versus, you know, other things that I mean, maybe main, you're not using? Mainstream is here. Um, it's not here in a big way, but I mean, you know, NFTs brought mainstream into crypto in a way that no other product has, right? So I think we still have a, a ways to go for mainstream. But um, yeah, I mean, we're we're just looking for products that uh, that get us excited, right? Um, and again, I, I think most investors, especially when you have a lot of money um, and you raise massive funds, you're just investing in narratives. So how do you explain um, FTX getting, you know, 200 million or whatever from Sequoia, right? It's, you have a massive fund and you have to invest in a narrative without understanding uh, how the thing actually works or being an actual user of the product. So, um, you know, we're just very laser focused on products that we understand. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have to be from a user perspective. It could also be from a developer's perspective. It's a very practical approach to like, 
is this product interesting? And we don't give a shit about whether the narrative is interesting or not. And I think most investors are too focused on on narrative. Nick, are there any? Um, I heard I heard you say this maybe a year or two ago on a on a panel. I think this was you who said it. You said the stronger the narrative is, the further it is from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind, of, it kind of ties into this conversation that we're having today. What are some narratives that you see in crypto, whether it's around L1s or L2s or app chains or real, real like? I guess anything like what are some narratives that you see today that you're just kind of like your bullshit flag goes up? Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of one right now. I mean, certainly one that has been maybe the biggest narrative over the past five years has been uh, next gen L1s. Right. Um, that has been a very strong that, that that's been the narrative that has arguably caught uh, kind of retail more than anything. And to me, that's a very strong narrative uh, that's, for the most part, to date, been bullshit. Like, and again, when, when I hear people argue about like a cheaper, faster uh, L1 or something like that, my bullshit meter goes up quite a bit. Um, because to me, w- what I think is really important in crypto is kind of new uh, social innovations. I think the technical innovation is, is vastly overrated. And so for an L1 to just come along and be like cheaper and faster than Ethereum, um, I don't think that matters much at all. Um, it, for an L1 to come along and have like a new social innovation, like a new governance, uh, you know, a radical approach to on-chain governance or um, a sovereign chain uh, you know, approach where you're, you're not going to have one chain that every app settles on, but you're going to have a bunch of app chains that all uh, are interconnected. Like those are the types of uh, things that I think are actually underrated because they're a little hard, right? My, my, in, my, in saying that, um, you know, the stronger the narrative, uh, the further from the truth, the, the other, another way to look at that is the truth is nuanced, right? So most people don't appreciate nuance. And so if you want to just get a lot of people to believe something, um, you lack nuance and you, you know, you state something that that is far from the truth. And, you know, the truth being nuanced, I think as an investor, like that's where you can actually do really well is if you appreciate truth, um, you invest in these nuanced uh, kind of, you know, projects. And so, again, an example of that would be like something like Solana is this very um, clear narrative, right? Cheaper, faster Ethereum. That makes sense to people. That excites people. I think that's, that, that's something that doesn't really matter um, in the long term. I think it's a clear narrative that is not um, that important, whereas something like Cosmos which it doesn't have this clear narrative um, that you can you can relate to something that already exists that makes a lot of sense. It's uh, you know sovereign chains. Most people don't appreciate that or care about that. But I think that's the type of thing that's really uh, that's that's a nuanced truth that um, you you know is better mm-hmm. off uh, for investors long term. So that's kind of how how I think. How do about you? It. Um... How do you marry that with this idea that sometimes the best product doesn't win in the sense like VHS Betamax, for instance? Um, sometimes, you know, 
the best tech does not win for a variety of reasons. So, I mean, it's quite early in crypto still, but, um, you know, do you think about that when you're investing? I mean, obviously around this idea of nuanced truths, like Cosmos, for instance, we had Zaki and those guys. I mean, super interesting, like Tendermint, super battle tested, but they don't have a marketing team. They don't have the BD muscle that other protocols have. They don't have as many resources. Do you ever think about that you know, in this kind of idea of investing kind of in a counter narrative, nuanced no, I, way? I mean, we're very focused on authenticity. Um, so again, my bet when, when I invest is that the authentic wins over time and things like marketing and BD don't matter that much. Um, and I think people that come from outside of crypto, um, they don't really get that or believe that. And again, that's my long-term bet. We've, we've been betting on it since the beginning and we still are. I'm not saying that's definitely um, going to play out in crypto, but I think it has for the most part to date, right? So we're, um, it's, we're, we're investing in authentic kind of first of its kind projects that we think are meaningfully uh, innovative from a social perspective that are pushing the space forward. Um, and again, as, as an investor that takes that approach in crypto, it can be very frustrating at times, right? Because in the short term, um, you see teams that have great marketing, great BD really shining and, um, and, and thriving. And especially in a bull market, uh, it takes a lot of juice out of these authentic projects. But look, I mean, FTX had great marketing um, and great BD, right? And they were really <clears throat> shining in the short term, um, but we know what happened. So I think betting on authenticity, um, if you can have a long-term perspective, um, and I think that's also something that a lot of people in crypto don't have, right? It's like, it's, it's, hard, it's easy to say, have a long-term perspective, but um, it's harder to actually do. And so, um, yeah, by betting on kind of authentic first of its kind projects that, um, you know, we understand from a, from a user perspective, that's, um, I think, a really good way to invest in crypto. And, and we've kind of shown that over the past uh, six or so years. A lot of the issue in, in crypto is how do you structure a fund? Um, you know, obviously you have like tokens and you can get liquidity much faster, um, while you're still investing like <clears throat> in a very venture-like manner, how are your funds structured? Um, and how do you think about kind of the life cycle of an investment, for example, OpenSea? Venture fund. So um, my friend Olaf from uh, Polychain, he, he started really the, the first crypto fund. Um, and he left Coinbase to start Polychain in like, I think mid 2016. And um, he structured initially as uh, a hedge fund. Um, and the hedge fund structure, you guys probably know this, but for those that don't, um, it's, um, you know, you get, you get carry on an annual basis. Um, and that's the, that's the core difference between a hedge fund and a, and a Venture fund, whereas a venture fund, the GP, the you know the manager of the fund doesn't get carry until uh, the LPs are in the profit. So I kind of always thought that this hedge fund structure, which you know Olaf kind of started, and obviously Polychain has done incredibly well um, and kind of led 
the first wave of, of crypto funds, I would say. Um, and because Polychain did it incredibly well, um, and everyone saw this crypto fund hedge fund that was killing it, a lot of, especially that kind of 2016, 2017 wave of funds took this hedge fund approach, right? Which is, again, as, the, as a fund manager, if you have a $100 million fund that's up 100% in year one, um, you're getting carry on that and your LPs are not. And so there's this fundamental misalignment and in incentives between the GP and the LP with that structure. So we took a very simple approach and I think we were, we were one of the first, if not the first to do it. It's like, we're gonna invest in both companies and in cryptocurrencies, but we're gonna do it in a venture fund structure. Right, so we're going to be aligned with our LPs um, by only making carry uh, when our LPs are in the profit. So that's that's the structure, um, and you know we now have three venture funds and a NFT fund, and that's the structure for for all our funds. Is uh, you know traditional venture fund ten year life of the fund, um, you get a management fee and you get carry. You only earn your carry when the LPs uh, are in the profit. So that, that that's the way we've done it. And I think that's the best structure for a crypto fund. Unless, uh, and I haven't really seen this, but unless you're you're truly able to generate kind of alpha trading or something like that on a annual basis. And that's kind of how these hedge funds justify uh, that type of uh, carry structure, especially in the traditional world. Um, but I haven't seen many that do it, right? Most hmm. of the crypto hedge funds are just, you know, going long crypto um, and not really training or, or trading or, or, or able to generate alpha uh, short term. Nick, I have one more question on venture stuff, and then maybe we can move on to more like maybe crypto native conversation here um, about some of the theses that you guys have laid out. Your partner, Richard, um, wrote a blog post on a couple different things in venture going on right now. And one of them was about uh, the only way to be successful in venture is to either have a very small, what he calls like a sniper fund, or be a large, almost like index fund, where you're basically just indexing the space. And I think it was his words, not mine, where he said, there, there is no in between, there is no, there, it's a no man's land in between the small sniper funds and the index funds. Why is that the case? And also, Santi, I'm curious if you, as Nick kind of lays that out, I'm curious if you would agree or disagree with that. But yeah, Nick, curious to hear your thesis there. Uh, I'm not sure if I, I necessarily agree with that. Clearly, as a small fund, if you can, you know, j maintain a relatively small fund size and be disciplined about how you're investing. Um, I think that's the best way to generate great returns for your LPs, right? Um, because, you know, it's just, it's just simple math. If you have a $25 million fund and you make one good investment, um, that can return the fund five times over. If you have a billion dollar yeah. fund, there's just not, um, you know, you don't have that, that opportunity to, um, generate great returns. So it's simple math. Um, in terms of like in the middle, so I guess it wanted to depend how you define fund size um, and, you know, what's small, what's in the middle. But I mean, I think there's probably, um, I would say, you know, we've taken the approach of like not raise more than 200 million in, in, um, in fund size. Um, I think if you go over that, um, then you just have to be an index fund. And again, that's investing in narratives um, where you're not really understanding things and you're maybe uh, missing the great early stage stuff 
um, but then getting in later where, um, you know, it's already clear. Um, so, you know, that's why a Sequoia can invest 200 million in FTX and still be fine. Um, like they're, they're still going to have probably decent returns for their LPs because they have such a big fund. They can kind of weather that. Um, but you know, what, what we found, what we really like is investing in products before there's a clear narrative, right? Like when we invested in OpenSea, NFTs weren't a category and it's not like OpenSea was, um, you know, unknown in Silicon Valley, they went through Y Combinator and they were talking about uh, digital goods and why digital goods were going to be important. And, you know, no one in Silicon Valley wanted, wanted to uh, give them money. I mean, they were they were not a hot company coming out of Y Combinator. Um, and, you know, then OpenSea explodes and then, you know, NFTs become a thing and everyone wants to invest in that narrative. When the narrative is clear, uh, the, the, the best investments are gone. And so that's why, you know, for, for our fund and even now, like we're investing in things that there's not a clear narrative around. Right. Um, we want to be investing in uh, and that's when the best uh, you know, investments can be made. And that's why as a sniper fund, you can kind of do that as a, um, you know, as a bigger fund, even maybe a medium sized fund. It's like, you know, you have to write bigger checks. Um, you have to invest yeah. in things when there's clear product market fit. Um, the return profile is lower for that. So, so what are what are some of those things that um, you think are kind of have no narrative or early that you're excited about now? Yeah, and and um, sometimes it's not no narrative at all. Actually, oftentimes it's not right because like even. NFTs in 2018, um, there were there was a small community of people that uh, was really obsessed with NFTs. Even back then, it was just there was no uh, narrative for for normies or even um, kind of you know techies that weren't super in crypto, right? It's like so um, you know we want to be investing in things that there's not a clear narrative, but there is. Uh, a small yeah, group. The, the underlying. So like okay. you had like CryptoKitties explode and congest Ethereum and people were writing them off like this is never going to work. But like yeah. you, you could have looked at that and said, my God, there's like, you're triggering a consumer yeah. behavior here and you could see the long-term path of it being huge. And so yeah. right, you invest in OpenSea. And, and oftentimes there's also, um, there's examples of like things that have been tried before that haven't worked. And so people point to those a lot. And that was true with NFTs as well. It's like, you know, there was, um, you know, colored coins and, um, you know, a bunch of stuff in NFTs that was happening on Bitcoin even before Ethereum. And people, you know, would point to that and say, oh, that didn't work. Why would it work this time? So and one example of that um, that I uh, feel really uh, strongly about is prediction markets. Um, so prediction markets, you guys know what prediction markets are. Most I, think, I think we're both investors in poly market. Okay, nice. Um, yeah, so prediction markets is one where, you know, they've been around for a while. Um, it's, they're, they're not, uh, you know, completely novel, but, um, you know, there's, there's a small community of people that like them. And I, I think, um, they have about as good a shot as any, as being like the next, uh, crypto product that really, uh, captures mainstream attention. 
So that, you know, that's one example. And I guess there you would have looked at Augur, which was kind of the first really to try this out and it kind of didn't really go anywhere, but, um, but then you kind of meet the founder of Polymarket and you get excited about, you know, the category at a time where most people were writing off the category because you had Augur that kind of didn't go anywhere. And it's like, yeah, we uh, invested, we invested in Augur um, and we were very, you know, close to that project when it launched. Um, we also invested in Vail um, out of our first fund, which was a, uh, another um, wow. company that, you know, tried prediction markets and um, it didn't work. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's going to work at some point. And Nick, um, that's the category that you're really excited about. How do you think about prediction markets in context of um, uh, like dissolution of public trust in institutions? Because in my mind, those kind of go hand in hand, right? As, as we truth for society used to come from governments and institutions and the New York Times and folks like that, mm -hmm. as truth goes down, it's nearly impossible to find the truth. And it feels like to me, if you had a global super liquid prediction market at scale, that's the best way in the world to reveal like true information. But I'm curious if that's like how much that aligns with your thesis on prediction. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that's a big part of it. Um, I think yeah. markets are fundamentally a better source of truth than, um, you know, media and narratives, right? Again, it comes down to, again, what, even what you asked me at the beginning about, you know, Silicon Valley and why I feel like it's mostly bullshit. And it's because it's, you know, the culture is, more about narrative than actually uh, performance and, and, and markets. And I would love the culture and venture to shift more to one where uh, it's markets and performance that matters over narratives. But um, I don't know if that, that will happen, but you know, prediction markets, I think has the ability to do that to, to culture in general, where um, you know, it's not just about the narrative, um, it's about people uh, with skin in the game that are, um, you know, are speculating on outcomes. And I think that uh, has the ability to bring uh, a lot more truth to the world. Um, the other kind of, this is kind of uh, something that Shane from Polymarket um, told me that uh, I very much believe in now um, that I think is a little underrated is um why, why did NFTs work um, so well? Why, why have they worked and um, why will they continue to work? I think a big part of it is the fact that they're a great business model for creators, right? Um, it, it be, being a new business model, as everyone in the world is being, becoming a creator if they want, NFTs are kind of a new business model. And I think we're still kind of early in th that journey of people appreciating that. But I think the same can be true about prediction markets, um, particularly when like uh, Polymarket or someone else launches create your own markets and any uh, influencer, uh, you know, on, on social media can essentially create their own market and um, generate fees on that. So I, I'm pretty bullish. Um, on, I mean, you see even in the past month, like prediction markets, you know, connect, colliding with culture, um, and you know the the sub uh, the submarine market on polymarket like went viral right. completely out of out of crypto. I don't think many people in crypto even knew about it or cared about it. But this was, and we're seeing um, 
you know, influencers start talking about these markets. Um, and I think, you know, prediction markets as a business model for creators could be quite interesting. So that's kind of an, an area um, that that I'm excited about in, in hmm. prediction markets in particular. And I think, again, it's, uh, you know, I like polymarket, um, but I think there's probably going to be uh, many others in this space. And and yeah. right now, um, I think you have to tip your your cap to Shane and Polymarket because, you know, they've grinded it out um, in a space that, you know, there's been interest, but most haven't uh, grinded it out. And I also think that's uh, often what you see um, when you, you get a big winner in a category. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's one of, you know, many categories that uh, we're, we're excited about right now that we think could could really be the next uh we always think about this lens of like what could be the next product that really pushes crypto into the mainstream well, what, what else are some of those excited about well i was gonna say i heard you talk about dow tooling and dows in general i'm curious to get your thoughts on the thesis there and what you're saying yeah i mean one thing that i think a lot about is like can we get to products beyond the primary thing being speculation and investment in money. And I think a lot of people kind of dismiss crypto because everything that's worked really to date has been about that. And I, I think that's just going to continue um, because, you know, we all know that the, the traditional financial world uh, was very restrictive um, and didn't allow does, doesn't allow a lot of different types of people to participate. And I think just being new financial markets and new money um, for more people in the world is obviously very important. So again, even something like prediction markets, which is a new category, I think is mostly about, you know, speculation investment. But um, we also spend a lot of time thinking about like, what are going to be the products beyond just speculating, speculation and investment? And if I were to bet, it's going to be about human organization. Um, and obviously, we, we all know that's what a DAO is, right? It's kind of a new form of human organization that uh, allows people uh, from different parts of the world to contribute resources to this organization and be incentivized for it. And so, you know, Bitcoin obviously was the first DAO, and DAOs are not something... Um, new uh, in the space in any way, shape or form. But um, I do think we still haven't seen products that make it easy for people to participate in DAOs. And that's kind of the thinking with DAO tooling. It's like, can we make it dead simple for people to, you know, contribute resources to an organization and, um, you know, receive something in return and, and um, you know, and grow. And, and that's kind of the idea with Dow tooling. So we've made, you know, a couple investments in the space. I don't think it's necessarily within crypto. You guys, you guys are familiar with Dow tooling and probably have invested in some companies. So it's not, um, I don't think it's a very, uh, you know, contrarian view or anything like that. But I do feel that um, at some point we're going to have a mainstream uh, product that just makes it that simple for people to participate in DAOs. Let's face it, concentrated liquidity is hard. And that's why I'm super excited to partner with Carbon for Empire. 
Carbon is a new DEX on Ethereum that makes concentrated liquidity easy. With Carbon, LPs can now automate your liquidity strategy with custom on-chain limit orders and range orders. Want to buy a token when it dips and sell it when it spikes? With Carbon, you can now set a strategy that buys in on one price range and sells in a higher range on repeat using a single source of automated rotating liquidity. Strategies can be created for any standard ERC-20 token. I recently checked out the Carbon Beta that just dropped, pretty blown away by the liquidity strategies that Carbon enables on-chain. It has these rich trading features that you'd expect from a centralized exchange, except Carbon is fully on-chain, decentralized, and non-custodial. Just connect your wallet. It's CarbonDeFi.xyz. That's CarbonDeFi.xyz. Choose a trading pair, set your buy and sell ranges and amounts, hit create, and you're done. Carbon automatically moves your liquidity into your selected ranges as the market moves. LPs, it is time to take back control of your liquidity with Carbon. Check out the link and get started today. Now, let's get back to Empire. Hey everyone, we'll get back to Empire in just a minute, but before we do that, I wanna let you know that we have Permissionless coming up. Permissionless is big conference that Blockworks and Bankless put on together. It is the biggest, the best DeFi conference in crypto. This year, it is in Austin, Texas, September 11th through 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best kind of conferences. We have a phenomenal lineup of speakers. A lot of the guests that you hear on Empire are both going to be speaking there. You will have the opportunity to meet them there. And a lot of the topics that we cover on Empire, ZK Tech, Rollups, Account Abstraction, MEV, App Chain Thesis, a lot of that kind of stuff that will all be discussed at Permissionless this year. So because you are a listener of Empire, you get a special discount. That's right. Santi and I negotiated with our marketing team. You get 30% off if you go to blockworks.com forward slash permissionless. Empire 30 is going to get you 30% off your ticket. Today, when I'm recording this, that's about $300 off your ticket. So type in Empire 30 when buying your permissionless ticket, you get about 300 bucks off. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. It's in the show notes. Do it quickly because prices go up all the time. And if you are going to Permissionless, hit me up. Let me know. Shoot me a DM on Twitter. I would love to meet up with you there. Nick, what's your working thesis on um, on NFTs? And I guess I might bucket that as like maybe three different buckets. There's like OpenSea and like the marketplaces. And there's like marketplace, a lot of marketplace competition right now. Then there's another bucket, which is, um, I think you purchased uh 4156. Was mm-hmm. this last, last year for like 3 million or three and a half million bucks? Um, yeah. yeah, you bought punk 4156 for 3.3 million. Um, so would love to just get your like working thesis around PFPs. And then there's this like more esoteric, but uh, bucket of NFTs, which is like unlocking creators, like music, NFTs, like royalty, like that, that kind of bucket that it feels like we saw at the very end of the of the of the NFT bubble, but that we'll mm-hmm. really see in the next cycle. What's your kind of? It would I don't know where you want to take that question or where you want to start there, but would love to just hear your working thesis around NFTs. Yeah, I mean, I think NFTs um, in five years have a, a good shot at being actually larger as a category than cryptocurrencies, um, and the reason I think that is because you know more people in the world care about culture than they do about just finance or money. And, um, you know, cryptocurrencies and DeFi, um, 
very much about money and finance. And I just think um, NFTs kind of are the, the intersection of money and culture in a really unique way that just uh, you know, brings more people to investing. So I think, you know, in crypt- crypto in general, it, it, it fits very nicely with the, the trend that I think is true, which is just everyone in the world is becoming an investor. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, that's a very empowering trend as well, because, you know, I think people in crypto maybe take it for granted, but like 10 years ago, it's like most people in the U S they think, Oh, to be an investor, you need to be, you know, have a certain degree or work on wall street or something like that. And so I think NFTs as a investment category, um, is going to continue to grow. And obviously it's down quite a bit from the last bubble, um, but our, you know the, our conviction there is as stronger as ever, kind of long term. Yeah. We we see we see bubbles come and go in crypto. So I guess the we could go into all the different categories there there are in NFTs, which I you know you guys know as well. Um, most of what's worked to date is is crypto art, right? Um, is and that's kind of we have a we have an NFT fund, and that's really what we've focused on to date. Um, you know, when we launched the NFT fund, we initially told LPs you know, we were going to invest, say, fifty percent of the fund in kind of high end crypto art, and fifty percent of the fund in new projects, right? Because, like anything in crypto, you know, we feel that there's always new stuff that comes along that ends up maybe being bigger than the last. So it's important to be kind of on the forefront of investing in new projects. And I will say that since we launched the NFT fund last year, um, we haven't even come close to 50% in, in new projects. The, um, the pace and the quality of the new projects in NFTs has been lower than expected, I would say. Um, so we've been mostly focused on kind of the high-end crypto art, um, which I think is just... Uh, a great store of value, um, just like it is traditional art is for traditional rich. You know, if you believe that crypto, uh, you know, wealth is going to increase, then you have to believe that high-end crypto art is going to be a good store of value as well. So that's kind of what we've been focused on. And we're obviously um, looking at new projects as well. But, um, you know, we haven't been investing a ton in kind of these new NFT projects um, lately. And if I, and you know, I had a call with an LP yesterday who kind of asked me where, where we're at on the NFT fund. And, you know, I said, look, we, last year we thought it might be 50-50. And now I would say it's, it'll be more like 70-30 or something like that. And um, just because, mm-hmm. we, you know, as a fund manager, you, you know, you go in with, you have to have a strategy going in, but I think you also have to uh, adapt to, you know, the market. And that's kind of how we've adapted uh, to, to this market. Um, and that's, again, subject to change. But I will say, obviously, the PFP craze captured mainstream attention. Most, we've largely stayed away from that, um, other than punks, which again, is the, is the authentic PFP, which, um, you know, we, ha- we have high conviction on. And we're, it, it's consistent with our strategy across Companies, cryptocurrencies, right? It's like what the authentic is—is is, I think where most of the value 
uh, you know, is captured long term. And so, you know, there's there's been other things in in NFTs that I think are authentic kind of first of its kind, like nouns, right, which is kind of the intersection of NFTs and DAOs and was the first of its kind to do that. So um, but we at the end of the day, we, you know, we think NFTs as a as a new business model for creators isn't going anywhere. You know, we're really excited about music NFTs as an example. Um, and we think, you know, in, in five years, there's going to be multi-billion dollar asset classes for basically every category of creativity um, on the Internet. And uh, you, we want to be investing both in like the marketplaces and the products that are facilitating that and also the uh, the assets themselves. So that, that's the thinking. Yeah. Did you buy that punk, uh, that uh, ape punk with the fund or personally? Fine. Yeah. yeah. When you, th- we had a six, five, two, nine, right after he purchased the ringer, um, the, the, the goose and he, we asked him, Hey, how do you think about, cause he said like some of the art that we buy, we just, it's forever. Like we want to keep it and we don't intend to sell it, but he also has a fund. And we asked him the question, like, how do you think about one valuing these things and two, like disposing of them after, you know, 10 years or so. And he didn't have, he was like, it's honestly a struggle. So I'm I'm curious how you think about and how different your strategy is for the NFT fund versus some of your other like traditional venture funds and and thinking about kind of the life cycle of an investment. Mm-hmm. So this same question was asked uh, by a lot of people when we started our crypto fund and how we think about valuing um, you know cryptocurrencies themselves, right? Um, and at the end of the day, right, we all know cryptocurrencies and NFTs value is based on belief and there's not uh, cash flows. There's not uh, traditional ways of, of valuing them. But we've always taken um, the, kind of a, a relative value approach. Right. So and this is how you know people this is how people convinced the traditional uh, institutional investors to invest in Bitcoin even, right? Is like, look, the total market cap of Bitcoin right now is uh, $570 billion. And what's the total market cap of gold? I haven't looked in a while, but, um, you know, last I, I, I recall is around eight uh, trillion, $7 or $8 trillion. Um, And if you believe in the digital gold narrative, then you must believe that Bitcoin is going to take, uh, you know, a, a big market share of that. So that's kind of how we think about NFTs too. If you look at like CryptoPunks, um, and I think a good comp for CryptoPunks would be something like Dogecoin. So Dogecoin, total market cap of Dogecoin right now is um, something like 11 billion. And I think the total market cap of Punks if you do floor price is um, less than a billion. Um, so do you think punks could cut into that or even be more culturally relevant than Dogecoin in five years um, as the space grows? That's kind of how I think about it. Um, so, you know, we, we, we think of every like, NFT creator that we invest in. So you could do CryptoPunks, you could do uh, Beeple, and you could look at the total market cap of, of, of Beeple 
right now relative to some shitcoin, um, right? And there's a lot of shitcoins that have a higher market cap than people right now. And I think, you know, something like Cardano or something you could use as a comp for people. And if you believe that people could be more culturally relevant in five years and you believe the space is going to grow, then, um, then people right now would be a good investment buying politics mm-hmm. is bullshit or something like that. So that that's, yeah. that's kind of how, how we think about it. Talk to me about other categories. We obviously, you know, we talked about art, uh, but I think something people don't appreciate is that NFTs can be really anything. It could be an insurance contract. It could be, you know, a, a real world asset expressed on chain, just anything that is again, you know, bespoke and not standard could be converted, can be an NFT represented on chain and then have all these kind of composability benefits and whatnot. How are you looking at that? Are you, are there any areas and sectors that you're excited about? Um, I mean, there's a lot of chat now on real world assets, which in a way are NFTs. Um, so if you express them in a way, so yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Um, I don't love real world assets. Um, I think real world assets will happen at some point, but you know, real world assets requires trust in a third party. And, you know, the, the, the things that have worked in crypto uh, minimize trust and actually don't require much trust, if any, in a third party. So, um, you know, we invested in Harbor, for example, out of, out of one, one. Oh, again, Josh's company. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, Josh and David Sachs. And um, again, that's not, to say it can't work now, there there may be reasons that it actually will work now. So, uh, um, but it's a space that I think is interesting. Um, I'm just more excited about crypto native on-chain assets that don't require. So, well, real world assets actually is a strong narrative, I think too, right? That could be a good example of something that, um, maybe as a strong narrative that people buy into it's because like everyone on wall street and we heard this in 2017 is like it sees everything happening in icos um and it's like oh we have real assets we should bring these on chain and so it's like a very obvious narrative um and one of the reasons i think it hasn't worked is because just the demand right like crypto natives um demand um innovation and bringing like a piece of real estate on chain is not really innovation. Um, and again, I think it will work at some point because when everyone's on chain, there's a need for um, you know diversification in a portfolio, and and pe- crypto people to own real want to own real estate and stuff like that. But just in terms of what what I think works early, I'd be much more excited about like music NFTs than real world yeah. assets for. Is like music is a obviously a, a huge category for creativity, and it's not it doesn't have the visual component. So I think it's still hard for people to wrap their heads around why music NFTs might be valuable. Um, but that's a category. I mean, we 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 see, and we're very much. I don't know if you guys have read any uh, Rene Girard. Um, Rene Girard is, would strongly recommend all your listeners uh, check out. Um, Read the scapegoat. I think that's his his most uh, easily digestible uh, book uh, as an intro. But um, we we see this in crypto mimetic theory, and it's the idea that desire is not 
based on ourselves, but it's based on others. And so in crypto, you see that with NFTs, right? It's like when there's only a few people that want NFTs, uh, you know, a people, no one wants it. But once everyone wants it, you know, everyone wants it. And so I think as an NFT investor, it, it, that that's a, a useful framework because if, if you can invest in things before everyone wants them uh, and you have a thesis for why everyone might want them in the long term, then that can be a great investment. I think something like mm-hmm. NFT music could be that, right? Because we all appreciate music. People don't really, um, you know, get excited about music NFTs yet. There is a small community that does. But, um, you know, once we have a Justin Bieber that, um, you know, mints uh, a music NFT on, um, you know, sound or catalog before they're Justin Bieber and then blows up and that becomes, you know, a headline just like people was, that's a thing that could get kind of the mimetic desire going. So those are some of the uh, things that I think about. On this point of music NFTs, which I think they lend themselves well to so to speak, fractionalization, right? You could presumably have a song and you issue these NFTs and they represent some sort of royalty stream that you're sharing with your audience or whatnot. What do you think about fractionalization? Are there use cases where it may lend itself well? And are there others that don't? Um, Particularly art versus something like music or something else. Okay. Well, one of the things, obviously there was a lot of excitement about fractionalization and maybe there still is. Um, one of the things we've seen with fractionalization of NFTs is um, it kind of um, transfers ownership from strong hands to weak hands. And so much of NFTs is about belief and strong hands and people not wanting to sell. And that's true in traditional art is kind of belief begets belief. And when you have some meme um, that then gets fractionalized um, and anyone can own it and then, you know, things change in the market and you have a bunch of people dump it. That's kind of what I think we've seen with a bunch of these fractionalization projects. So I like the idea of fractionalization, right? In theory, obviously it's like you want inclusivity. You want anyone to be able to own a punk. Um, and I think we just haven't found the right balance yet. Um, like a lot of the things I'm thinking there was like a doge meme. Do you guys remember that one that, um, yeah, there was, well, there's two, one of them, pleaser Dow um, did before that, there was a guy that bought and fractionalized it. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I think that was like the biggest, you guys may may know others, but t- that was the biggest I remember of like a mm-hmm. participation in a, a fractionalized NFT. And I don't think it, it's gone very well. And I think maybe we just haven't seen the right iteration of it. Because again, I think in theory, you want like anyone to be able to own a punk mm-hmm. and maybe punks or something that has a lot of strong hands already. And then you, you kind of allow us, a small but growing number of people to participate in a small way and you roll it out a certain way. Um, you just need to figure out the right balance of like giving people the opportunity to own it while also making sure that they're not weak handed and are just going to dump when things uh, go wrong. That's been the, the yeah. issue I think for fractionalization to date. 
On this point, I want to touch a little bit on how you, the state of the NFT market. I mean, obviously a lot of the floor prices have gone down quite a bit and, you know, are basically, you know, have a higher beta to ETH and Bitcoin. Um, feels to me like a lot of the market for a while has just been pure speculators. Um, that, and so I, I'm curious how you, how, is, is that a bad thing? I mean, people say, hey, look, NFTs are just another way to, you know, financialize art and people to speculate on this stuff and then go on leverage. And does that bother you? Do you think that's an issue? Um, or is that just a normal market where there's a bunch of speculators and you sort of accept that? It, yeah, it doesn't bother me, but um, it does, when I see that activity, it does um, give me a pause to, to participate. Okay, so w- when we, um, we invested in SuperAir, um, we were like led the seed round in super rare and we're still very involved in super rare and I'm on the board. And what got me so excited about super rare was that you had a bunch of collectors that were not signaling that they were collectors or trying to shill their bags or anything like that. And it wasn't about short-term financial gain. They deeply believed in the art and they, I think we're also motivated by financially, but they have a long-term perspective rather than a short-term perspective. And that's what really we look for in, in, in NFTs, right? So I think there's certainly a, um, there's a market of people that want to trade and speculate um, and, you know, get short-term, uh, you know, gains on, on punks or something like that. There's, you know, this punks OTC guy that I think has done quite well, you know, just buying and selling uh, punks. Right. So th- there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's a market for it, but, um, but yeah, I think what we look for is like when there's um, a strong community of quiet, confident holders, right. I think that makes like the best NFT community and it can be, frustrating, right? Because like super rare, for example, was really uh, one of the first to, to push NFTs and crypto art forward. And they, um, you know, they've had great success, but then PFPs came along and kind of drowned out the success and more people in the world have heard about bored apes than, than super rare. Right. Um, and that's when, again, when I get back, I think I said earlier that like authenticity, I think is the right bet uh, long-term, even though, uh, in the short term, it can be quite frustrating when you have people that are better at marketing or better at business development or convincing celebrities to come on board or something like that. So, um, yeah, I forget mm-hmm. the initial question. I think I went on a tangent, but that's kind of that was a good that was a good that was a good rant. I, I like that, Nick. Um, I've, I have a, one more question uh, about NFTs here, Nick. You guys did the uh, seed seed round of OpenSea. I think you put in like two million bucks in the seed round. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure you guys did did pretty well on that. It sounds like. What is the future of OpenSea? And maybe a more targeted question here is: uh, OpenSea has been has had a tough go of it. I'd say the last 18 months, folks like Blur have come come around and eaten away at their market share. And I think one big question for OpenSea is: if you look at crypto businesses, uh, specifically crypto marketplaces, the ones with the tokens that can align incentives between the users and the investors oftentimes do better like the uniswaps of the world uh, end up doing mm-hmm. doing pretty well because they align incentives does it make sense for OpenSea to have a token um so i guess two questions one 
op, what are my general thoughts on OpenSea, which is um, I'm quite bullish on OpenSea. Um, you know, OpenSea, I think, is the best product uh, at bringing uh, crypto natives or, or, or new people, non-crypto natives, um, to um, crypto, really. I mean, um, outside of centralized you know, exchanges and things like that. So, you know, the, the, the volumes in the short term, um, I'm not as concerned about. It's not surprising that there's crypto native products that are very appealing to traders um, and that have token incentives that uh, come along. And, you know, I think OpenSea has made some very good moves. Um, and again, I'm obviously biased and I understand why there's negative sentiment on OpenSea on crypto Twitter and things like that, because they don't have a token. And um, I think, you know, some people, I see this, I've seen this at Coinbase since I was there, right? Is that you, when you're the, the biggest, you have a target on your back and, um, yeah. you know, the, the, there's, while there's the most people that are happy with the product, you also have a small segment of people that are, that are the loudest uh, against it, right? So I think, long story short, OpenSea is well positioned uh, as NFTs come back, right? Like, and, and, and NFTs need to come back. Um, or else OpenSea obviously has no business. But um, I, I strongly believe NFTs will come back. And I strongly believe, led by, again, some of the moves that OpenSea has made in terms of um, Seaport and uh, OpenSea Pro and bringing uh, Nadavon as CTO, I think it, through an acquisition, I think they've made a lot of good moves that are kind of under the radar that will pay off um, if and when there's another NFT bull market. So yeah. not that concerned about, you know, competitors that are mm -hmm. taking kind of market share in the short term. I don't think any of the products that I've seen are really geared towards uh, a mainstream user. Do you think they, they should have a token? Do you think they should eventually IPO? Like what is the kind of exit as a VC investing in them? What is the exit plan there? One of the things I like, I really like about Devin is when DeFi summer was, was going on right in, um, was it summer of 2020, you know, he had compound and Uniswap and all these tokens going crazy. I was setting up weekly meetings with Devin and Alex, trying to convince them to launch a token, because I do believe that for a marketplace, giving users ownership is incredibly powerful. We all understand that. Um, and, you know, Devin and Alex were listening, but they were always pushing back um, and they, they didn't feel it was the right time. And even, before um, things really took off with OpenSea, a lot of people probably don't remember this, uh, Rarible was a competitor and Rarible launched the Rari token. And they got a bunch of initial volume too. So it looked like we were like, fuck, this shitty uh, you know, NFT marketplace that doesn't have the product that we do, just launch a token and they're going to you know, eat our lunch. And they were just focused on a product and, and building a product that was useful. And they didn't feel like it was the right time for a token. So I, I trust and believe in Devin uh, it would be my answer. Like, I do think there's benefits to a token and I see why people are pushing them to do a token. There's also uh, a number of, of risks and trade-offs that come with that. And so I personally would like to see an OpenSea token at some point. Um, but I also, you, you can't question 
uh, Devin's judgment. I think he has very good judgment and, and, and makes good moves. And so I'm not, uh, you know, trying to push him to launch a token or, or so, something like that. I think, um, you know, hopefully then the time is right. They will give uh, ownership to users in some way, shape or form, because that is, I think, yeah. uh, you know, how you need to, how you need to grow a marketplace. So. Yeah. You were at Coinbase from when? 2013 through 2016? Mm-hmm. What do you what do you think Wall Street most misunderstands about Coinbase right now? Um I'm not sure I necessarily think they misunderstand anything. I, I don't know. I'm I'm not that focused on Wall Street sentiment of Coinbase. I mean my I haven't sold a share um that that I that I got from, you know, working there. Um I'm still bullish on Coinbase. I think if anything, Wall Street just doesn't think crypto is is real, um, or or kind of maybe limp, lump, you know lumps all crypto with FTX. Um, and I think like the SEC and uh, isn't doing it any favors. Um, so I would say, look, Coinbase has been a great company for over a decade, done right by consumers and. Um, I think again, the truth is nuanced, right? And I think that the, the narrative maybe in Wall Street might still be crypto is, you know, interesting and experimental, but there's not much real there, and um, is never going to be super meaningful in the world. Um, I think if you believe that, um, then Coinbase isn't interesting. If you believe that crypto is interesting, I think you know for public market investors, uh, Coinbase is the best public market exposure. Um, what do you think of base? The Coinbase L2? I'm not super excited about it, but at the same time, I think it's probably a good move for Coinbase. Um, it's not something I'm paying attention a lot to, um, to be honest, but um, I think it's good to, for Coinbase to be doing innovative stuff. Um, I mean, when I was at Coinbase, I was the guy that was, launching, like I launched the Coinbase tip button in 2013, which was, this is when we thought that, um, that micropayments, Bitcoin micropayments was going to be a big thing for, uh, for creators. And, um, you know, that didn't go anywhere. Um, but I think, you know, it was good that we were pushing on new stuff. And I think it's still good that, uh, Coinbase is, is pushing on new stuff. So I like, I like the, the idea and the direction. Do I think it's going to be super meaningful for the business or for crypto? Um, probably not. Hmm. Can you dive a little bit more into that? I mean, uh, some say, hey, listen, Coinbase has all the users and if they can allow for users to kind of enter this world via base, then all the better. Um, would you push back on that? Or I, I'm just kind of curious to understand a little bit more why you're not as excited. I mean, look at threads. Do you guys... Have you guys used Threads uh, since it came out a couple of weeks ago? No. I'm generally skeptical when uh, the argument is, oh, this company that, that's useful for this has all the distribution and they're going to be able to port it over to, you know, this new thing, right? Um, that's just my general bias. So again, I, I can't say, I'd love to hear from someone who has yeah. like- a, well, to, be, to be fair, like Instagram stories did kill Snapchat, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that was a more, um, 
that was a feature um, within a product, right? So I think there, there is a difference there. Um, and again, that, I'm using that as an example to say mm-hmm. that's my bias. I'm always very skeptical of, you know, a comp- an existing company um, that tries to uh, get in a new business just leveraging their existing distribution. Um, so that's kind of why I've dismissed it. Again, I, I'd love to hear from someone that has a strong mm-hmm. bull case for it because I haven't looked at it super closely. Yeah. I guess transitioning a bit, you know, especially during bear markets, we all crypto natives get asked the question like, look, uh, point to me as something that is mainstream. Like, why, why, what is this all useful for? And I think it's the hardest question to ask, uh, to answer being in the industry. Because you, okay, certainly you can point to NFTs and yeah, like there is traction, but it's it's not mainstream. And it's, it's still very difficult for most people to get onboarded, get started with crypto. And you can point to regulations, you can point to bad UI, UX, whatever it is. What's your timeline? I mean, obviously you believe that at some point a lot of these things are going to be mainstream. But what's what's like your working timeline and what are the catalysts to get to that state of the world, like in five, 10 years, maybe more? Mm-hmm. Well, again, I think mainstream, it depends on your definition and it depends on your vantage point. Because like, you know, when I was at Coinbase in 2013, if you told me that then where we'd be now, uh, I, I wouldn't have believed that, that, and you know, that would, that would, where we are now would have surpassed my wildest dreams in terms of cultural relevance of crypto, right? Like it's still not, um, you know, widely used by billions of people, but the cultural relevance of crypto, I think you could argue is, is, uh, is mainstream. So um, I think certainly we need more. um, And I think what gets us there, um, there's really two things. I I think what, what most people would say would be UX. Um, And I'm sympathetic to that kind of argument, but I don't really buy it. Um, I think um, the UX is okay. Um, And if there's interesting enough consumer behaviors, um, then it's good. Like, so I don't, I don't think, I don't think UX is necessarily the answer though. You know, things like smart contract wallets, um, you know, we are investing in that category and I do think it's worth, um, you know, building in, in that space. Uh, and I mean, we have since, uh, 2019 when we invested in Ethereum, Ethereum was like one of the first smart contract wallets that basically was on mainnet. And when DeFi summer took off, um, it ended up being a couple hundred dollars to create a wallet. So mainnet got too, uh, costly for smart contract wallets. And I am excited about what I'm seeing now um, for smart contract wallets on L2s um, like Polygon and Arbitrum and and Optimism, um, because I think that is something that is going to help. I don't think that's going to, I think that is, you know, kind of a nice to have that maybe give a slight bump. But what we really need is new consumer behaviors that are compelling. And that's what I'm, that's what things like prediction markets, what things like, uh, you know, DAOs, decentralized social networks. These are new consumer behaviors that I think are going to be more impactful than the, um, the UX. The, the example I give to people is like, 
look at uh, look at Dapper Labs um, and look at NBA Top Shots. Right, um, there's a lot of early excitement about NBA Top Shots. Oh, it has this great centralized UX that makes it easy for people to get on, um, and that worked okay, you know, in a bull market in a moment in time. But I mean, if you look at the the, the flow NFT volume versus Ethereum NFT volume, I think in the past month, um, flow has done like one one hundredth of Ethereum in terms of NFT volume. So I don't know, that, that's an example I used recently to someone that was talking about, uh, you know, UX, because I think it can be somewhat helpful, but I think what we really need is like compelling um, behaviors that give people true ownership and allow people to participate um, in, you know, organizations or, or, or things like that in new ways. So that's, and, and timeline, I, I'm, the reason I, you know, I mean, venture is, um, I'm not good at predicting, uh, you know, timing on a short-term basis, right? The benefit of, uh, you know, building or having like a venture fund is, um, you know, you're measured over uh, a 10-year time horizon or so. So, Sure. I haven't heard you mention stable coins, which to me feel like a Trojan horse, a killer use case for the vast majority of the world that wants to hold and own dollars mm-hmm. and then enter DeFi and then have exposure to a lot of financial products, credit, uh, putting credit for a side, because you could talk about how credit's inefficient in DeFi, but like just financial products that are not possible or available in their jurisdiction. Um. Curious to get your thoughts on, on that. We all know the um, the importance of stablecoins uh, in crypto today, um, and there's clearly product market fit for stablecoins as a trading vehicle um, on decentralized exchanges for people or centralized exchanges for people that want to trade in and out of a volatile coin, um, and, and you know, and make money in trading. So that's um, really the main use case. For, for stable coins today, in my view. And I think what, what we need is uh, stable coins. And what we really haven't seen yet is stable coins as a medium of exchange. And frankly, I'm surprised um, that for, take NFTs. NFTs is a category of, of e-commerce and 90, 99% of NFT volume is still uh, you know, ETH or, or you know, Solana or, what, or whatever, rather than a stablecoin, and that's that's been surprising to me. So, um, I think it's it's just a question of timing. Um, I do think, um, like we have a portfolio company called Bridge, um, Bridge.xyz. Um, the founders are project manager and uh, engineer from Coinbase that are that are fantastic, and. Their thesis, which I think is a good one, is um, you know one of the, the, the main a main reason that we haven't seen stablecoins take off yet as a medium of exchange is the developer tools. The um, like the stablecoins have been very focused on um, just like issuance um, and not actually making a good developer experience. Um, so they're now. Um, you know, power, their APIs for, you know, fintech companies that are outside of crypto that maybe want to use stablecoins on the back end. Um, and they're finding actually pretty good success right now for 
uh, with, with like a, a use case would be a DAO um, that needs to pay taxes, um, but doesn't want to touch uh, fiat currency or a bank. Um, and so Bridge facilitates a DAO to convert stable coins to USD, USD to pay taxes, um, as an example. So, hmm. uh, you know, I think APIs that make it easy for people to uh, convert fiat to stables and uh, developers to, you know, offer these types of products to end users, I think could be uh, meaningful. So, yeah, that, that's, I, I got a plug in there for, for one of our companies. But that's <laughs> so good. You got, you got to get the plug in there, Nick. You got to get so the plug in. Nick, oh. Well, there's been a couple of <laughs> plugs out there, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's good. It's I, wa- I want to, um, I know we're coming up on time here, so I want to, uh, Make sure that we just cover the presidential election in uh, next year's presidential election. You've been spending time with a couple of the candidates. Um, you, I think you hosted a dinner for DeSantis. You might have spent time with RFK. I'm pretty sure it was. I don't know if mm-hmm. there are others. Would love to just gauge like what what is your sense of how important crypto is to these candidates? Um, good question. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I've never been interested in politics really uh, or, or getting involved in politics, but I think crypto is at a point where um, politics matters to some degree. And I'm a single issue voter. Um, I, I think I, I view crypto as uh, the, you know, the most important thing for human freedom for the next uh, 30 years. And so that's kind of my motivation for, uh, you know, spending time with, with anyone running for president. Um, I think is crypto important to both RFK and DeSantis? Um, yes. I think on the list of importance, how important, um, I would say it's probably not top five. Um, but I think both, both of them in particular, um, are, are, are pro freedom and, they see what the current administration uh, is doing to crypto um, in terms of pushing innovation and, and entrepreneurship offshore um, and potentially, um, you know, being restrictive to freedom. And that's kind of the lens by which mm-hmm. they look at it. So I think like they're, they're both different. Like to me, uh, Bobby Kennedy, he instinctively, recognizes that Bitcoin is important and important for freedom. And is he getting in the weeds with me on uh, Ethereum or DeFi or things like that? Uh, no, but um, he um, he understands the importance of, of crypto and instinctively, uh, uh, you know, sees that um, it is pro-freedom. And so he's in favor of it. And he's got some pretty um, interesting ideas that I'm sure you guys have seen around, um, you know, the, the, the federal government buying Bitcoin to back the dollar, uh, also potentially uh, eliminating cap gains tax for for Bitcoin. Um, and so, yeah, I think he there's probably a few things. One, he sees it as, uh, you know, beneficial to human freedom. Two, he, he, he understands that there are some um, you know, many single issue voters that, um, and a strong community that, you know, for a gra- grassroots campaign like him, tapping into that could potentially be beneficial. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of my view on him. And then DeSantis, um, I think he's, 
a little more in the weeds. Um, and I think he's a very smart guy that is not great at perception, um, but uh, is good at understanding issues and getting shit done. Um, and so, you know, like he came out very early and said, uh, CBDCs are, are, are um, a no-go in the state of Florida, which um, was is a nuanced view. Most people, I think when they saw that, didn't even know what CBDCs were, but he took that stance, which I think uh, is, is, is a nuanced and correct view. And hmm. he was also, um, like I think, I don't think he's the only one, but he was going to do more uh, last year, uh, particularly in NFTs, but then FTX you know, happened. And that just, I think, put a pause, uh, you know, for him and a lot of people like him. So I think they both, again, it's probably number, I don't know, six or seven or eight on on their list of kind of important issues. Um, But the fact that, again, we're in 2023, and I'm talking to potential presidents about this stuff. um, If you asked me, that if that was a possibility, uh, you know, 10 years ago in 2013, I would have thought you were crazy. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's pretty it's awesome for the space that, um, that it's come this far. So, yeah, Nick, man, this was awesome chat. I appreciate you, uh, you coming on. We should do this again yeah. soon. Definitely. Yeah. Enjoyed chatting with you guys and, uh, always happy to do it again. And good luck, uh, building your bunker. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. <laughs>